Rockstar Podcast, episode 35. We sit down with Nick Briner and Jonathan Parham of 360 Degrees AOR Worldwide. We talk military, we talk law enforcement, we talk about a lot of security for buildings and all the risk management that both Jonathan and Nick provide to small facilities, to police departments, and to large facilities, even the size of Bellworks here at our home. Hope you enjoy the podcast. It's over an hour, but it is one of our best podcasts with a lot of great information from both Jonathan and Nick, and we don't do so bad ourselves. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Rockstar Podcast, episode 36. No, no, five, 35. Yes, we established that. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, Lorenzo here. Tony, how are you? Yep. Okay, not Tony. This is not Tony here. Mariano, you knew I was going with that. How you doing, Mariano? I'm doing great. How about you? Good. You, now, you're going to have to carry a little bit more because Tony does a pretty good job of speaking and talking, so you're going to have to give me more than that. Uh, Are you well, stressed out with work? <laughs> I, I am a little stressed out with work. I have a presentation coming on Saturday. You have multiple in, in presentations. New, I have multiple presentations, but the first one is coming up on Saturday in New York. I was up till very late last night working on it, and I am feeling it today. And very late for you and me is what time is late? Uh, three o'clock in the morning. Three o'clock in the morning. So, bright and chipper here. Bright and chipper. And I've, you know, it's it's upsetting me more than anything else because I've been actually trying to go to bed much earlier. Are you still going for your walk? <laughs> much earlier, meaning midnight. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it didn't work last night. So. Okay. Well, there's actually someone at the table who we'll introduce momentarily who's had a rougher night last night. Couldn't stay, had to go to sleep even later. Oh, um, can't wait to hear it. So. Uh, the conference you have? What do you have? Uh, I'm going to the Vision Expo conference in New York. And this is the one that you're doing all by yourself? Oh. This is the one I'm doing all by myself. For how long? For, it's a 15-minute talk. Oh, this is only a 15 minutes. This is only a 15-minute. Now you got more. Okay. And then I got one. I'm going to a, a dental conference in April, and I have two two-hour continuing education sessions that I'm running based two. on the same material, but I'm going to expand on so it. So you're going to have to speak for two hours. And I can't get more than a hello out of you after the podcast, <laughs> right? Just so we both understand. <laughs> well, I'm spending a lot of time preparing all, for all this stuff. I can, I can do a whole podcast on the stuff that I'm doing if you want. Uh, challenge accepted. <laughs> uh, are you doing the two-hour conference with the same topic as the 15-minute one? Uh, yes, but instead, of, for the first one I'm doing with dentists, and the, so the statistics will change a little bit. Uh, right, but that's a big stretch with content going from... Two hours. Yeah, but I can do it. I mean, no, no, we've we've established uh, that you are (laughs) capable of doing it. How well you are, we don't know. Uh, So it's two hours, two hours, and a fifteen. Yeah, and then there's there's a potential for forty five in May. You just decide. (laughs) Gary Vaynerchuk now. I'm not deciding any of it. I'm just being told this is how much time you have, so I have to reformat the information to fit that time time slot. And one of them is a TEDx. Or a TED? With uh, this t- this one on Saturday is a TED style, and so oh TED style is that yeah. what they call it now? There, it's not a TEDx. Oh, it's it not. not I, TEDx. I actually would love to do a TEDx, but I don't feel that I have the presence to do a TEDx. Well, I've watched many TEDxes. I've not known who the person was, so the presence in terms of who is this guy, or presence as in terms of stage presence. Stage presence. Really? Yeah. I, I don't know. I just you don't know, have the could, confidence you could for do something a TEDx like that. And I could bring the microphone and you could do it like a podcast. <laughs> if we did it like a live podcast, Where I think I'd be very comfortable. Awkward questions and stuff. <laughs> you feel more comfortable. Okay, you want me to sit in the front so row? So basically, maybe? it's just it's just this podcast with an audience. 
7,000 listens is not bad for a podcast. <laughs> no, I got to say, I was very surprised at that number, um, but pleasantly surprised. I was like, <laughs> I think you were more than surprised that you were like, are you shitting me right now, 7,000 <laughs> listens? Uh, well, maybe they're lying to us about the stats, but that's the t- types of lies I like. Maybe it's all the Russians that are listening to us. Okay, so there we go. <laughs> with, that, with that, let's bring our guests who so have nothing to do with anything like that. Uh, Nick Briner. How are you, Nick? I'm well. How are you? You're so awkward on the microphone. You don't even. Know. No one's looking at you, so you can just talk to me, or you can talk to Mariana. Uh-huh. So, gotcha. How was your uh, evening last night? Did you get to bed early on time? Uh, I have not gotten to bed yet. You have not gone to bed no, yet. Not yet. So, Mariano, see, I knew this in advance already, but I didn't want to say that to you. Yes. Uh, I did well, set you up with that. I appreciate. Uh, well, I'm very you, sorry that you did not go to bed because that is rough. It is. It is, and it's my own fault. I have a six-week-old baby oh. and a three-year-old son. Wow. And uh, that is my own choosing to be <laughs> up all night <laughs> entertaining them as they scream. So, so go ahead. Well, I was going to say the tired that you feel as a new parent or as a parent of a very young child is unlike any other tired that you've ever felt in your life. And I'm sure you can now <laughs> with he those two experiences. Because he's at three kids. Uh, I'm uh, at three kids. So he okay. wins all of them. <laughs> you're at one, you're okay. At yep. two, your parents. At three, you're just like insane. Okay. And then it doesn't yeah. matter if you have three or nine at that point. It doesn't really matter. No, after three, it's a whole nother yeah. level. Yeah. 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 Yes. yeah. I've heard that. And uh, you brought a partner with you, Jonathan Parham. Did I pronounce it correctly, Jonathan? That's correct. Okay, how are you, sir? I'm well, how are you? Good. How was your uh, sleeping last night? <laughs> I actually slept very well. I went to bed at 9 p.m. and woke up at uh, about 6.30 this morning, so I'm doing well. Wow. Okay. So on the podcast, I tend to lean more towards the whole concept of sleeping because there's how much do you sleep, a healthy amount of sleep. Are you traditionally a 9 to 10 around sleep time? Uh, actually, no. Uh, since I've retired, I've been able to get anywhere between seven and eight hours of sleep in, uh, per night. But prior to that, I'm more along a four to five for the four last 25 years. Okay. Wow. And why is that? What have you been doing for the past 25 uh, years? Buddy? For the last 25 <laughs> years, I've been a police officer, um, and uh, it's been a pretty rough. So different units, different assignments, different hours, shifts, uh, different demands. And uh, sometimes the, the stress can keep you up, worrying about uh, what to do, what not to do, laws that you need to uh, study, and uh, it kind of gets to you. And, and mostly the the sleep pattern, the, the shifts get to you the most. Um, so now, what, without having to do that, I'm able to get a lot of sleep, and it's a, it's a truly a different world. I love it. Hmm. So were you more stressed when you were sleeping trying to think of all this stuff than you were actually working sometimes? Or was it, uh, you know, thinking of different laws, like you said, things of that that you did on while you were working? Or was it an easy four to five hours sleep, I'm going to crash and go to sleep right away? The, the beauty of law enforcement especially when you love it, is that as you're going through these things, uh, you just do them. You love it because you're there. You love it because you're, you're doing what you love to do and you're helping people. And uh, if you're well-trained, there's really not a whole lot of thinking. I know that sounds crazy. You, you end up responding to your training uh, and you use that training template in various situations. So there's, there's not a whole lot of thought that drives you crazy. However, after the critical incident, after, God forbid, the shooting incident or the, or the major car accident or... Uh, something that's really bad that uh, you know you're, you're used to seeing over 25 years. That's when it gets to you, uh, and the the exhaustion that you feel. That's what keeps you up at night. Uh, uh, it it makes you extremely tired, but it doesn't make you sleepy. Uh, so you may be physically drained, you may be emotionally exhausted, but you don't get to sleep. You just get mm. to sit there and be tired. Are we talking about law enforcement or children? <laughs> Which one are we talking about? A lot of bit of both. As you were doing probably both around the yes. same time. Right? Absolutely. They so, both make you feel the same way. Yes. Now, you two are working together, correct? Correct. Uh, 
company? What do you do? Give me a little bit about the company. Nick, as the uh, agent here, apparently, uh, you want to give us a, a minute or two with Jonathan on what you guys are doing? Uh, Jonathan and I are partners in a company called 360 AOR Worldwide, and we are a public safety risk management consulting and training firm. Whoa, that's a lot of stuff right It's there. a lot of words, yes. right? So yeah. dumb it down for us. Yeah, right on. Okay. Uh, we, we specialize in risk, and our, our tagline is risk resolved. So uh, a lot of what's going on uh, in the world today, uh, as far as security concerns for private citizens, for corporations, for the faith-based community, for government agencies, uh, has a lot to do with uh, risk management and risk mitigation. And uh, how do we prevent bad things from happening? And when they do happen, how do we mitigate the impact on an organization, on a school, on a church? Uh, so we've taken our many, many years of expertise and brought it into this consulting firm. And uh, that's what we so, do. So would yeah. a consulting firm like yours be called in, for example, like what happened in New Zealand recently? Would you be called in to look at what happened, analyze how it happened, and then determine ways to mitigate that risk in the future? Right. Um, but on, on a, a couple of different levels. So we wouldn't start off looking at the, the suspects, uh, the men who committed the horrific acts. What we do is look at the people. We look at the buildings. We look at the area, um, the, the environment. We look at calls that went to the facility beforehand. Uh, we look at the, the physical structure itself, um, mm -hmm. something uh, called crime prevention through environmental design. We look at the shrubbery and the lighting and the CCTV cameras and um, the way that the, the people operate, the, are, are they, the way the parking lot is set up. There are a number of things that we would do to say, we're going to lend our expertise in the hopes that this will never happen again. But for those places that it hasn't happened, we want to prevent things. It's, it's one thing to be able to come in and say, okay, we know what happened and we can give you a fix. That, that provides a little bit of value. Um, and, and for people that want us to come there and do that probative search, we'll do that. But our specialty is really saying, we look at, at best practices. We look at lessons learned from other incidents, and we want to prevent things from happening at your facility, at your home, at your workplace. Mm -hmm. Nick, uh, give me a little bit of your background, and then I'm going to go swing back to Jonathan to get a little bit more about his as well. Yeah, yeah. Very similar to Jonathan, uh, I've been in career law enforcement. I have 24 years in police work, and I'm currently an active police captain in northern New Jersey. Uh, I have about 16 years of military experience, uh, still active there uh, in the Air Force, uh, the National Guard component of the Air Force, and then probably about 10 years doing this type of consulting work. Uh, so pretty well-rounded in, in security, military, law enforcement, uh, okay. and, and all those genres. Could you tell us who you voted for, your religion? And oh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> we'll save you from that. Uh, so uh, captain currently military, uh, can you speak a little bit to that? Uh, yeah, as I said, I've been uh, about 16 years uh, in the Air Force. Uh, I've deployed about four times to different combat zones. Uh, still do it, still based here in New Jersey as a reservist. Uh, love it. Uh, very, very re rewarding. Um, went into that after 9-11 because of 9-11 and just kind of wanted to pitch in and do my part. And I thought I would do maybe four or five, six years and uh, just get it out of my system, but I'm still here. Jeez, I brought socks to Fire Engine 55 in New York, and you went <laughs> totally rogue. The other I made yeah. me look like a fool. So Is, yeah. oh, I, I was gonna, call. I was gonna ask, did you, um, did you, uh, did you fly, or were you more on the ground? Uh, I am in a support position. I'm okay. In, uh, I do not fly. I'm in uh, an operations support position. Okay. 
Yeah, but uh, Lorenzo, you kind of touched on that, bringing socks over to the uh, to the firehouses and stuff. So, kind of full circle here. Um, everyone has these defining uh, events and moments in their lives, right? And f for our generation, I mean, 9/11 yep. has got to be one of those. It right? is the sure. I think so. It's our, our our Pearl Harbor, right? Yeah. So 9/11, uh, mm -hmm. I had already been a police officer for six years, and uh, obviously we mobilized. I work in northern New Jersey. I can see the World Trade Center from the town where I work as a police officer. So then we saw the towers every day on the way to work, and then I saw the, you know, the smoking hole that they became, uh, deployed over to New York with the police department as a first responder. In the, in the weeks after the tragedy, you know, went to Ground Zero, worked at the morgue, uh, did all kinds of different assignments that uh, impacted me so, so deeply. Sure. Uh, so I wound up enlisting in the military, I got commissioned as a lieutenant, uh, wound up in Afghanistan, kind of in the place where 9-11 started uh, for me. And I don't know, there was some kind of closure for me, or uh, I, I felt complete. Gotcha. Uh, after being at, at Ground Zero in a couple of days after 9-11, and then landing and deploying to Afghanistan and doing my part there, uh, it was kind of a surreal but very reassuring and, uh, and gave me a lot of closure from those feelings. So of those things, what was what? What do you think has been? I don't want to say toughest, but Afghanistan, seeing nine eleven, working as a law enforcement police, is it all kind of just different <laughs> but equal on all different types of ways? Yeah, you know what's funny, uh, and I think Jonathan will echo this when you talk to him about it. Uh, people have asked me that a lot. Hey, you've been all over the world, these combat zones, and you've been a cop, and you know, kind of contrast and compare the two. Sure, I've been much more afraid as a police officer hmm. than I ever was as a military member. And and first of all, if anybody tells you that they're not afraid, uh, and, and you talk to somebody and they don't admit that. I'm afraid for you guys. Yeah, <laughs> me too. So I can only be, you know, and it's just yeah. humanity, right? Yeah. It's, but yeah. Well, if, if anyone who's been in these types of situations as, a, as an officer, as a, as a corrections officer, as a soldier, as a Marine, as, a, as an airman, if somebody says, hey, no, I, I, I'm not afraid, I've never been afraid of anything. So they're either lying to you or they're a little crazy. Right? And, and, and you don't want either of those people next to you when it counts. You don't want liars and you don't want crazy people. Right. So I've been the most fearful uh, on a car stop, say, 2 o'clock in the morning by yourself with a car that you run on the computer and it comes back as a, a stolen vehicle or a carjacked vehicle, and it's you and three or four unknown individuals in the car, suspects, whatever you want to call in them. Which in most case, 90%, 95% of it, it's just normal situations, but that 5% or whatever the percentages are could be the thing that ends everything. Could could be your day. Right, yeah. so... Um, I've been much more afraid in some of those circumstances than I ever was in a military situation. The band of brothers there, you're together, it's, it's a little bit of a community where if you could walk up to a car that you pulled over on the parkway with five fellow police officers, the same, you'd feel a little bit possibly safer. P potentially. Yeah, because both the situations are the unknown. Mm -hmm. But with military, you probably have a little bit more known in a, in a weird kind of way because it's so sophisticated, the it, data. In the say. type of work that I did, uh, it, was, it was a very secure feeling. You know, you're part of a very large apparatus that is conducting operations. And, and obviously, I mean, there could be a rocket attack, a mortar attack, something like that, and, and you know, kind of like the golden BB could land on your head right. as you're working, okay. and that could be it. Uh, but you don't really think about that. You know, you get the job mm -hmm. done, you, you, you do your mission, and you get it done. And in the police environment, when it's, you're out there solo and you're the decision maker and, you know, your life and death is in your own hands. And, and 
it's tough to admit, but many nights I feel like I went home based on luck or the grace of God mm-hmm. or, or the cosmos or whatever you want to call it. And you're like, man, how, how did I get through that? Or rain wow. where you don't want to the, get out of the car. <laughs> just kidding. Right. Yeah, well, and there's a lot more anticipation. It's, it, what I'm hearing from you is that there's a lot more. Uh, you kind of build up the fear because you think about what could happen that whole time. Whereas in Afghanistan, if something happened, it was going to be instant, and there's no like, there's no time to think about what could happen, how you're going to get away from that situation. I could run. I could make this, this decision. But as a cop. You know what your duty is, and even if it's hard, you have to make the decision to, to, to go through with whatever you need to do. You need to approach that car that looks potentially dangerous, and uh, you know. And I'm sure that you guys appreciate both of you when people kind of follow the rules and just say basic rules. Hands on the wheels. <laughs> you know, here's my license and registration. <laughs> so let me ask, let me ask Jonathan yeah. before I find out about it. I get pulled over. Do you want me to not rummage around looking for my insurance card, or do you want me to run, or is it okay that I do that? Because I've heard both from friends who are cops that says, I don't want to see you pretending to do something. And I, this is just public sure. silliness, maybe, but, you know, it's something that I think about. Well, uh, I would much rather you just sat still uh, okay. and, and wait for me to come up and give some instructions. Uh, you, you have to realize that, uh, as Vic alluded to, we're scared, too. Uh, and we're scared during every car stop, or at the very least, I don't, I don't know if scared is the right word, but we are apprehensive. We are aware that there could be danger, and we are consistently approaching the unknown. Uh, and that unknown could require us to, to respond with training uh, and, and, and physical response and emotional response that we haven't had for quite some time. Okay. So th- there's a, a difficulty there, but the overarching sense of doing our duty, of investigating something, of providing assistance, uh, of of doing the job, uh, and that's what I think people who are, have not been in the military or law enforcement or in emergency services sometimes may not understand about police officers or, or that group of people is that we love doing the job. It is a sense of purpose that is attached to us, and although it may be scary and it may be we may be fearful, um, we do it. We and, and we we willingly face that fear because the desire to serve the community is greater than the desire for us to be safe. Or at least equal, if nothing else. Because the, the goal is to go home safe. I remember you, t- you told me right, this, right? Right, so, right. So, so, so if you think about that, uh, that aspect, if we, it's crazy. If, if we consistently think that all we want to do is go home safe, we won't come to work. Like, hmm. There's no reason. Uh, if I want to ensure that I go home safe, well, I won't be a cop. That's easy. Right. Uh, so, so while we push that tenant and everyone hears that, it's really not the thing that makes us do what we do. Our commitment to the cause, to... to to law enforcement as a whole, to the country, to the citizenry, is really what makes us do our job. We know that we need to go home safe, and we want to be reminded of that, and we want to remind our peers, uh, and we want to remind the public that this is why we do what we do, so that we go home safe, because we also have families to go home to. True. Uh, but it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough job sometimes. Um, Mariana, just I, as a quick note, Nick told me he wasn't going to talk, which is why I went right after him. <laughs> he did I'm, a healthy like nine minutes straight without an interruption. And I'm like, okay, he's actually talking more than I thought he would be. So we'll go back to you, Nick, but uh, well done. I, I just wanted to try and get you, your, you know, out of my shell. I, yeah. I do have one question for yes. you. Um, so you're apprehensive most times, or you're, you're at least aware and, and a heightened sense of awareness when you're approaching uh, a potentially dangerous situation. Do you ever walk away from a situation and think to yourself, I was too hard on that person? Or do you ever, do you ever feel like you were too hard on someone 
looking back and and thinking that maybe you were you were nervous about a situation it ended up being nothing and you now did this happen to you is no, I'm, oh, I'm, okay. I'm just curious. He's I'm, a Bostonian, I'm, by the way. I'll, <laughs> I'll answer that by saying this, that uh, I don't think there's anyone who, who could say that uh, looking back on their life, they haven't made mistakes uh, or they haven't uh, done, done something where, where initially they perceived it to be one thing and they've reacted only to find out that it was something else. Uh, so, of, of course, uh, over 25 years uh, in, in one location and in another year in another, I've absolutely made some mistakes. Uh, but it's that reflection that allows me to look back and say, okay, I need to do that better next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the constant idea of after the initial, whether it's a car stop, whether it's an investigation or whatever it was, to sit there and reflect on that moment and say, what could I have done better? And then ensure that I do that the next time. And it's not just me. That's, you know, that's what good training officers teach their, um, their patrol officers. That's what good sergeants teach their patrol officers. That's what good leaders teach their men and women that are out there. You're not going to be perfect, and don't be so hard on yourself. However, there are some fundamental truths that you need to uphold. Uh, respect and uh, adherence to civil rights and all those things. There is no excuse for violating those principles. Uh, having a harsh word or, or reacting too soon, that's one thing. Violating someone's rights is something completely different. Where did you uh, grow up? Where uh, Give us a little bit of a timeline to whatever you can tell us about. So uh, I grew up in London, um, and, and no, no problem saying that, and, and I was... I was into music. I, I was involved in plays, and I played instruments, and I was in the choir. And, and uh, for me, that literally was my, my way out. Um, I, we weren't rich. Um, we, we did okay. Uh, I would, I'd like to say we are poor, but I didn't realize it back then. Uh, <laughs> Most of us poor people don't realize it back then. <laughs> but those things really shaped my life. It, it gave me a love for classical music and for the theater and things like that and uh, for, for speaking out and, and not having a shyness about getting in front of people. And I have to say that although most people may not think that that's something that would help uh, in law enforcement, it absolutely did. The ability to uh, respect different cultures and different languages and different people and um, and then play a part that is somewhat different than who I truly am is another thing. Law enforcement officers feel stressed because we act. We act when we go to work. We get out there. We act the way the public expects us to act. Uh, and that takes a lot out of you. It's stressful. You can have a completely quiet day and walk home and go home and sit down and be exhausted because it's an act. There is, hopefully, there are no police officers who, who act rigid when they get home, uh, but there are some times when we need to present this front that we have this strength that we are going to relay, one, to protect ourselves or to protect someone else, uh, and that's tiring. So my, my background afforded me the opportunity to, to practice all of that. Um, no doubt that I'm different at home than I am at work. Um, but as I get older, the two start to merge a little bit more, and I'm less, I've become less rigid and more communicative, um, and, and my background has allowed me to do that. I've had quiet days when I get home tired and going tailgating at the Giant game, get home after the Giant game from drinking and get home. I'm like, I didn't do anything. I'm exhausted. <laughs> so I completely understand what you mean, Jonathan. Um, did you? Were you uh, completely analogous. Good, totally. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's equal, too. I didn't know I was going to get home safe either that night. Uh, did you, uh, law enforcement in New Jersey? Law enforcement in New Jersey, uh, correct. I, I've, I always, I at one point, I, I, I realized that I wanted to become a police officer, and it was after uh, what I consider to be a, a real watershed moment in my life. Uh, I was sitting on the front steps of my house with my brother, and uh, a couple of friends of mine were walking down the street. And around the corner from me was a pretty um, dangerous area. 
But on my street, they're really, I mean, all of the years I lived there, nothing ever happened except for this one incident. Um, some police officers pulled behind uh, my friends and uh, had some exchanges with them, and they weren't very polite, and they may have roughed them up a little bit. And I can recall sitting there uh, with, with tears in my eyes, looking at this feeling completely powerless and uh, wondering why this had to happen, hmm. looking at, at the what I believe to be an incongruency between what I expected the police to, to be like and, and behave uh, and what I was seeing. So my father was in the driveway working on the car, um, and the driveway was a little bit back, so he didn't see any of these things. Uh, after the exchange was over, um, I ran to the driveway, and, and I began to tell my father what, what happened. And I, again, tears in my eyes, and I'm very angry. And uh, as he's fixing the car, he, he pretty much just you know takes his rag, and he wipes his hand off, and, and he looks at me, and he says... Uh, you know, if you want to talk to me more about this because you plan on doing something, then please continue talking. He says, but if you just want to complain, then shut up. Oh. Uh, and I sat there for a moment, and I wasn't sure who I was more upset with, the police or him at that point. Were you uh, 13? I was about 13 years old. Uh, and I didn't understand what he was saying, but but even now as I, as I tell the story, I realize that he laid the foundation for if there is a problem that you see, that you have a visceral response to that bothers you so much that you need to speak about it. That is God's way of saying that you are the one to fix that problem. Uh, hmm. So I looked at this and said, in a naive way, yeah. I know I'm going to fix this, so I'm going to be a police officer and make sure this never happens again. Um, how, <laughs> that's how I got to policing, because, because from that point on, I wanted to be a cop. But I can absolutely tell you that uh, as I became a police officer and going through the years, I, I understood why police officers may have short tempers. I understand why sometimes they're not as polite as we think they should be. I don't excuse it, but I, I certainly understand it. But uh, that I, was the moment that pushed me towards policing. The um, that's first of all, that's a that's a great story. Um, how does you how does your father feel about you now? Like, does he is he happy that you went at, out and actually did something about it? My father uh, passed away a few years ago. Uh, Sorry to hear that. But thank you, sir. Uh, but I will tell you that he was my greatest hero. Uh, I I would call him. I, I used to call him uh, uh, the the Moses of prophets uh, because he would say things that completely made no sense to me uh, until <laughs> years later, where, where I would look at a little bit and go, "Wow, how did he figure that out?" Uh, but I do recall that at my police graduation back in 1992, when I graduated the police academy, uh, you know, he he pulled me to the side and he said. You know, I just never thought that you wanted to be a police officer. And I recall to him the story that I just shared with you. And his response was, wow, if I knew that, I never would have said anything. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> um, did you, so you remember that obviously. Yes. Vividly, although at the time you said you weren't sure. When you decided to do that, because of maybe some, maybe not in Lynn or in the town itself, but would... How did your friends react to that type of stuff? Because, you know, sometimes you're like, you're going to be a cop? Wait a second. We're just gonna, or was it, it didn't matter? It, well, it didn't matter because my friends were my, my cousins and my brother, and uh, they're very accepting. And, and at that point, we were just being young. We were, we were, you know, teenagers doing what we do, and they, they all shared the, the same experiences I shared. And, you know, there, there were times where we would sit on the railroad tracks at night, and we would just talk about the problems that we saw. And, and of course, we projecting to the future how one day we're going to do this and that and save the world and all those things. Yes. And that just never left me. Um, and while, again, it's, it's very naive, I would encourage people to to keep that sense of naivete and, and the idea that you can absolutely change the world. Think of any 
Think of the worst person that you know in the world, that one man or woman that you just completely despise and the effect that one man or woman has on the world in a negative way. We can have that same effect in a positive way, just one person. So mm-hmm. I would encourage us to continue to believe in ourselves. Do you remember your first day? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, fearful. <laughs> yeah. You know, back, back then, the, the training program wasn't as robust as it should have been. Is it uh, two-year academy or... Well, it was a 20-week 20, 20 academy, Okay. Uh, and from that point when you graduate, uh, it was more or less, okay, kid, here's the keys. Um, this is your district. Stay off the radio. Let me just ask you. <laughs> no, oh, Mike. That's it. <laughs> Were you able to choose a vicinity, a town, or anything like that, or was it basically, could you have been anywhere in New Jersey? Um, the, so the test that I took was specifically for the town that I ended up in. So okay. I, I knew where I was going, okay. and um, oddly enough, I... I I had spoken with the chief of police. Um, I was one of the one of very few minorities uh, on the police force at that time. So mm-hmm. prior to that, the chief had come to my church, and I won't say I was recruited, but it, it seemed that way okay. um, uh, that I was recruited for that. So, uh, so getting on the job, it, it was it was difficult. Uh, there's no two ways about it. Uh, you know, being a, a young African American in in a town that that um, where the police force was 99 percent uh, white males, uh, it, it was tough. Uh, and I endured a lot. Uh, I had to ignore a lot. Uh, you know, when I felt like I needed to stand up for myself, I did. But uh, there was there was stress either from, you know, inside the department or from outside the department, literally just about every day of my career. Uh, and, and that's not a sob story. It is to say that those problems and the coping mechanisms that I learned uh, along the way helped make me the person that I am. Did you, recognizing that there were those, there were those problems, a, as you kind of ink, as you grew in your position in the police department, did you do anything to affect change within, within your own department? Like, did you s- try to serve as an example for people? Did you um, take advantage? Did it come to you as a surprise? Um, I, maybe it's a gradual type thing that happened, but, like, I wonder if there was, like, the moment in the driveway, if there was, like, a, whoa, I thought we were all on the same side here, for the most part. Oh, that, that happened quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> that happened quite a bit. Okay. Um, Nick, you're coming back to this conversation, so and, why don't you do nothing? And the, the beauty of that was is that taught me uh, something very important, and that was that I will not run from any man or any woman. I, I won't run away scared. Uh, I won't take excessive sick days to run away from a problem. I won't allow any man or woman to put fear in my heart, and, and believe it or not, the discord that I felt from my, my coworkers is what built that in me. And so the majority of us look at people in our family and say, wow, they're, they're, they're great for me. They're there to support me. I have to say the, the things that affected me the most were the people that didn't support me, hmm. the ones who said that I couldn't do it or that uh, for whatever reason that, that they didn't accept me. And my desire to prove them wrong is what really pushed so you me. used it as fuel. It was a challenge. Absolutely. To this yeah. day, um, it's, it's what propels me. And uh, again, d- difficult times, um, but wouldn't change it for the world. There's a phrase in the Bible that says, uh, it is good that I was afflicted. Uh, it basically means that those problems I, I, I internalize and I use as fuel to make me better, and I continue to do that. Now, not all of them were, were their fault. I, I'm sure I added a lot to it. Um, I had a bit of a chip uh, when I was younger, as, as most young people do, and so that added to it. But the lessons from that uh, helped me to, to be the man that I am. So that first day took forever or went by really quick? Uh, it, it went by quick. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get with some really good police officers. I mean, it, it wasn't all bad. And and those days would fly by because you wanted to be on the job so long. I mean, at the end of the shift, when, when it was time for you to go home, you wanted to stay longer. You wanted to patrol more. You wanted to learn more. Um, 
and that's where I began to learn patience. Uh, you know, it, you're not going to get it all in one day, in one week, in one month. You have to, you know, take your time and you have to listen more than you have to talk. And there were great examples of uh, people who, you know, there's always that guy who, who when he shows up, uh, he could be at a, at, a, at a nun's picnic and there's going to be a fight. Or there's yeah. a guy who can show up at a biker rally and he can speak, you know, speak and talk everyone into submission. And I was fortunate enough to be around uh, both types so that I could learn, but more so the guy who was able to, to verbalize and, and communicate with people to calm them down and de-escalate. Um, and that helped a great deal throughout my career as well. Nick, could you give us a real emotional story about when you wanted to become a <laughs> or are you just going to mail it in right now? Uh, Do you, g- give me, uh, like, was there a moment or no? I, I, well, first of all, I was going to give you a little anecdote there just to, okay. to, to segue from what Jonathan said, and you guys will appreciate this. In the police world, the best cops can talk people into the handcuffs. If you kind of understand where that's yeah, going, sure. yeah, right, and definitely. Just as he said, I know people. It's how know, I used to date in the set. <laughs> used to talk <laughs> to me in the handcuffs and the Benadryl and the duct yes, tape. I remember also, who's listening and who's on. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, there, there are guys and girls who do this job for for decades, and every interaction, every arrest, every uh, every time they encounter somebody, it's a problem. It's either a verbal or a physical problem. Every arrest is a resisting arrest. It's an assault charge on the police. And there's other people, they go their whole career, and there's not one of those. And they literally talk them into the handcuffs. You know, hey, you know, this is what it is. You got to come with us for a couple hours. We're going to do some paperwork. You did what you did. You're a human being. I'm a human being. You know, I'm not mad at you. You're not mad at me. (laughs) Let's just go down to the police station and and straighten this out. Um, As far as a heart-wrenching story, how I began, I mean, I was always kind of uh, attracted to the to the career, um, it, very anticlimactic story. My next door neighbor was already a police officer and I saw him outside, I had to be 20 years old and he saw him out front between our two homes. He says, hey, you know, local town here is hiring police. You should take the test. And at that time the test was free. I mean, now they, they charge fees. Uh, back then it was free. So he said, here, fill this out, mail it in, you go take the test. I did that, mailed it in, took the test. Didn't hear anything for two years. Two years later, I get a letter in the mail that they got to my name on the list. Hey, we're going to offer you this job. All right. I talked to my dad about it. My dad was a, was a truck driver and a, a teamster and a hardworking, old-fashioned guy. Mm-hmm. And what's the first thing he said? Cops, good benefits, good pension, security. Very generational. Uh, yeah, exactly. Traditional generation, you know, guy from the, uh, from the, the World War II era. Good job, security, you know, they're going to take care of you, give you a pension. Go, go take this job. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> and I went down and took it. And, uh, and 24 years has gone by in the blink of an eye, I can tell you that. And that's another thing, the first day on the, the job. The days go slow, the years go by fast. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the, how it is. Yeah, the nights are long, the years are fast, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, you go into the locker room on day one, and there's some... Uh, gray-haired guy in there with a 25-year scowl on his face. It's, All right, kid, you know, this is what it is. And he gives you the little pep talk. And you'll see. You're going to be me. It's going to fly by. Enjoy it. And, you know, you go, yeah, all right. Okay, old man. Some old guy <laughs> told me that at the gym locker room, but it got weirder after that. It was a different story. It was a whole different story. <laughs> well, those guys at the gym, they got to walk around with no towels on all the time. That's well, what makes it so odd. Well, let's not yeah. ruin it for this whole podcast. But, yes, it is some sightly scenes there. Um, your first day? My first day uh, kind of was a classic busy day. And I don't Did they know tell you to stay off the radio? 
Of course. They say... Uh, You're just trying to make Jonathan feel better? No, no, no. no. He's actually... <laughs> is that like just like you'll fuck this, it up if you say anything on the radio? What he is telling you is gospel. That You get in the car, you're a new cop, and your eyes are as big as pie plates, yep. and you're so excited, and your pulse is going 150 miles an hour, and the older guy says, hey, kid, sit there, shut up, don't touch anything. Less and is I'll, more. And I'll tell you what to do. And I, keep your eyes open and your mouth shut. So you had all this training, both of you, yet Anderson Cooper can go into some tank, and, be, <laughs> and he's totally got free will. You guys have to just be quiet. Yeah. He doesn't want you guys screwed up because of the emotional deal. They know, obviously. And then... Do you guys remember bringing someone on for their first day? And how... You got a funny story? I don't know. You both laughed on this. No, well... well Did you haze a little bit? Um, <laughs> like, chase the car for a little bit? Like, I know. It, it was important to me to undo the mistakes that were done with me. So what I didn't want to do is is sort of do the the whole indoctrination, indoctrination where, hey, this happens to everybody. We're going to haze the police. We're going to... You know, play little games on you. I thought that that was childish, and, okay. and I didn't think it was necessary, uh, a necessary tactic. We should we should move on. The job is too important for those things. There's going to be enough jocularity throughout the years. I, yes. I didn't feel like I okay. needed to be part of it. Um, but what I did do was I worked on on uh, repetition. Whatever we talked about, I would repeat it over and over and over again. And it was it started off, excuse me, with with tactics on how to stay alive, and then the next thing was really about getting out to know. Getting out of the cars to know the, the merchants, to know the people on the corner, to, to be seen. Uh, one is so that the people in the area know that you're not afraid. Uh, because when they think that you're afraid, then, then you have a, a difficulty connecting to them. Two, it is just being a human, uh, recognizing that I need to know the owner of this store. So if I, one, if I ever need to go to him for help, I can do that. But two, just because it's, a, it's the thing to do. It's just a human way to interact with people. When we utilize people as a resource or as a tool, we get less out of the interaction than if we were to just say, you're a human and I'm a human. This is just how we're supposed to act. And people can see that. So I didn't want the officers to say, the only reason you're talking to this person is because they can help you. The reason you're talking to this person is because you're supposed to. You know, this is funny because this is like how if I'm sitting down with sports athletes and athletes will, will speak to me and I'll speak to them and they'll say, well, they don't really understand because they're fans. And we say, well, you don't really understand because we see the other side of it. So I think about it, what you said with the community and stuff, and as just part of the public, I have seen one, I've seen a million people say, you know, we need to get back into the community, get back into the community. And I, as a pub, in the public, say, well, okay, when are you going to do that? If we're going to just talk about it, I know you're giving me a, an example here, but for me in the public, I hear this all the time. And whether it's about this topic or other topics, and I say, the community is there. They're waiting. So it's almost like the thought, the, the, the concept is there to want to do it. But maybe, and sometimes it's probably the problem with the community because they don't want to deal with the police. They don't want it. So it's both sides' fault, I think. I, I don't look at it as a fault. I look at it as, as us not recognizing the complexities that go into this. So Us as everybody? Correct. Okay, uh, yes. So, so why, why aren't we on the beat anymore? And it's silly enough, we have cars and we have lots of calls to respond to. Mm. Our job is to uh, address the calls that come in. Uh, so we're going from call to call, and depending upon how busy the town is, the reason that we used to have cops on the beat is because the the, uh, the agency didn't have a lot of cars. It's as simple as that. Right, That so that's the, the mathematics of it in a sense, mm -hmm. I get that. And I, as the naive public, say to myself, well, I see all these kids who are learning internships, or like mm -hmm. in my town, right? The, they're in the police academy or they're junior police officers and they stay in the center of town and they just walk during the day, you know, because it's, there's no conflict or very little conflict in my town. 
And I just wonder if it starts young with where a police force, every town has one person who just during the day walks for a couple hours once a week. Like that seems to me a very practical thing, cars or no cars, that you could do. And it feels like it's an easy step. I know there's red tape, but it feels like there's an easy step to just do that once, two, three times a week to have everybody in the uh, at the police station do three or four hours just walking. And towns are usually small. Now, in a town like Newark or larger towns, it gets difficult, but you have more police. I, I don't know. It seems like that seems like a practical step. Maybe I just don't see it, and it is happening. There, there, there is a lot of that. Um, most departments understand that as a tenet of community policing, it's called the park and walk. The park and walk is, is an excellent it's a tactic, it's a great uh, resource, and it's a way for, for both sides to get to know each other. Um, again, depending upon the call volume that the agency has and how, many, um, how much personnel they have. Uh, there are times where due to uh, retirements and sick outs and, and, and whether layoffs or whatever, you don't have enough per- people to do those, um, what we consider to be extra things, although they should be staples, um, well, you're trying to stop the fire initially, and then you can worry about everything else. And, and unfortunately, you never stop the fire. And so you don't get back to the fire's that gotten bigger. Thing. It seems like they, 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 they seem to do that. But I will tell you that that taking the initiative to put officers on patrol, especially in the higher crime areas, the busier areas, will absolutely pay dividends as long as you have the right officer. If you have the right officer who is able to communicate better and to glean information from the community and uh, use those uh, use everyone uh, as a resource for, for problem solving, not necessarily crime uh, solving crimes, but solving problems. Because the majority of the calls that we go to are not crimes. They're literally um, things that my neighbor is making too much noise or I have a, a landlord-tenant issue or they're quality of life issues that make the living there a little bit more tenuous and we need someone to be able to communicate with, uh, with the tenants and provide resources. We're the conduit between the, the individual that we're talking to and the resources that the county, the city, and the state provide. Okay. Um, pineapple on your pizza or no? <laughs> I've never had pineapple on my pizza. <laughs> okay, I think you said never had pizza. I was like, wait a second. No. Nick? I'm a fan of all pizza. Okay. I, uh, I have had pineapple and, and ham. I have a Hawaiian uh, yeah. pizza. That's not mm. pizza, but you've had something like that. <laughs> I, 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 coming from a, a Neapolitan such as yourself, that's yes. not a real pizza. Salernita, but I, don't say Neapolitan. Uh, in, in, <laughs> they pickpocket in Salerno, they stay on the beach. So. <laughs> yeah. yes. Yes. Uh, so yes to pineapple. Marianne? I could eat it. What, pineapple on my pizza? You better I, watch I've had it. Answer. I've yeah, had it. You, okay, see, that to me is even, like, I wouldn't. Okay, you've had it. <laughs> and I, I didn't you, completely okay. dislike it, but I mean, it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that's an Italian pizza then. Well, I think most pizza here is not Italian. It's true. But true, um, very you true. can see how this conversation we just waver all around. But uh, so <laughs> the your answer is spam. that if you had to have it because you were starving, you would eat it. No, right. no. Oh, okay. are you scared right now? I'm going to do something. Okay. All right. No. Okay. Bacon on pizza? Uh, no. No. Okay. Oh, right. I'm a vegan. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Pizza. I'm just like I like pizza, so I just like to find out to make sure. So you are a little bit of a fan of pineapple on pizza. Uh, I have enjoyed it. it All right, we'll take care, Nick. <laughs> there you go. There, there was your. I I actually had had a follow up question because oh, okay. to buy an apple on pizza. No, not oh, to follow okay. to the real questioning question. before. The real question that is before. a real question. Nick. So uh, what I wanted to know is. First of all, you guys have a breadth of experience, and it really—I mean, 
you guys articulate it very well here. I mean, I feel like I'm in the middle of a TED talk, you know, because you guys are doing such a good job about communicating what you did. I was did. part of that conversation too. So <laughs> sure, you were you were the moderator. Thank you very yes, much. Um, so, but I wanted to know. So, with this experience, tell us a little bit about the journey between being police officers and developing this company. How did how did that experience pull you into what you're doing, what you're what you're doing or going to be doing now? Um, in, in a compound word, problem solving. Uh, I was forced to attend a um, safety meeting uh, at, at my police department. Um, and when I say forces, because I really didn't want to go. Uh, and the, the chief said, hey, you're going to the safety meeting. And I said, okay, chief. Uh, when I got there, uh, the insurance carriers were talking about the amount of injuries that our officers were sustaining during uh, simple arrests. And uh, I'm looking at the statistics, and they said, listen, th these are problems, and we have, uh, we have injuries here, and we have uh, costs related to that. We have people that are now being injured. Uh, it's costing money for MRIs. And, and, and I began to look at it, and I said, oh, well, this, this is easy. This is easy to figure out. And they all looked at me, and they, and they were trying to figure out, well, yeah, you just don't get it. You don't get what we're trying to tell you. And I said, no, well, the reason that they're having injuries is because the last time these officers were trained is when they were in the police academy. So you have officers that are around the 10 and 15 year mark. They're, they're out there being proactive. They're, having, uh, they're engaging people uh, and, and dealing with combative subjects uh, that are resisting them. And so they're getting soft tissue injuries and they're falling and hurting themselves. I said, it's kind of simple. So the, the, the issue was that while we had insurance adjusters, insurance people who were looking at the results of law enforcement activity, they didn't understand the culture. They didn't understand the training that went along with it. Uh, and I saw this as an opportunity to, to share with them and learn from them at the same time and say, well, if we just did more training, if we were to update this training and address what you're seeing as results, we can mitigate these hmm. things long before they become problems. And uh, out, of, out of that, we built a program. Uh, and the next year, we went from having, uh, let's say, you know, uh, 19 injuries down to two. Uh, wow. And they were able to see that. And, and kind of the light bulb went off, okay, let's start. So start the insurance companies uh, must have loved you. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and really, it, it, unfortunately, it, we, and I say unfortunately because we had to focus on the insurance companies because they had the ability to make change. They mm -hmm. were able to say, if you don't have better policy, do better training, then we're going to have a problem. Uh, but this is something that law enforcement has been crying out for years. The first thing that gets affected is our training dollars. And when you when you have a less trained officer who is dealing with the same type of incident, he or she is going to make mistakes more often. Those mistakes are going to uh, turn into injuries and lawsuits, and, and we're going to have loss as a result of that. The fix is easy. We only The only problem is we had to use the insurance companies as the conduit to get that fix. That's where the money was... That's where it was. I mean, totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. I mean, there's there are countless instances where people are not looking. People look at the cost of that training, or I mean, and it happens in other areas too. But they look at the cost of that training and saying, "Okay, this is this is a hard cost. I'm seeing it every day. I don't know what. I, I'm I'm guessing that if we get rid of this or reduce it, we're going to save some money. But in the long run, the opposite is in fact true. It's Correct. costing them more money. It's costing them more lawsuits. It's that's a it's really interesting that you had that light bulb moment. So are you helping, are you actually consulting with just other police departments or are you consulting, or it, does it go beyond police departments for your security? 
So it's a great uh, segue you bring up there and a great connection that you've made, even though you don't have a background in, in the things that... I made it too, by the way. You did, yeah. I, I saw the light bulb <laughs> go on over your head, uh, even though you were just sitting there silently. Um, to back up for a moment, you realize that there's an investment in preventing bad things from happening, and quantifying the value of that is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So our combined 50 years, let's say, uh, despite our youthful appearance... Our, our 50 years of experience in public safety is a business where you cannot quantify when things go well, right? Because mm-hmm. what is the sign that things There's are... There's no ROI on it because nothing happens, so Correct. that's good, right? Right. But right. So if you go... It's hard to... If, if I give you kind of like a, a, a two-second history lesson in, in policing, right? The father of modern policing is a, a guy from England named Sir Robert Peel. And in 1829, he... With an E at the end? Is P-E-E-L. No E at the end. Oh, see, I thought it was... Okay. Um, he established modern policing in London, and, and we follow his principles today. And he said the, the, the measure of police effectiveness is the absence of crime and disorder, not the obvious uh, activity by the police in conflict with criminals. So mm-hmm. th- when you don't have crime and you don't have disorder, that's when things are going well. It's mm-hmm. like having a referee that you don't notice. Exactly. Because really there's no, no fouls the called better, in the yeah, game and, and things go smoothly. The problem is is that you can't, like you said, quantify it. And you can say, well, you've had 100 great days and now you had one crappy day and now we're going to talk. There you go. Right. That's right. just humanity so, and the way we look at things sometimes. So kind of a corollary issue probably for another podcast is people who complain about police salaries, and I'm not going to take a position on either side of that, but how do you, you how do, well, how should you quantify a salary for a person whose deliverables are intangible, mm-hmm. right? The absence of crime and disorder, a feeling of safety and security in the community. I but feel that's like not intangible, Nick. As a public person, like that intangible may seem like in the data sense in, intangible or something. But to me, when I'm looking for towns to live in, that's really something it's, that's important. But it's it's I I it, maybe intangible is not the right word. But it's or you've been doing this for longer than we have, so you're probably using the right word. But I think <clears throat> it's it's not something that you um, you don't become aware of it. <clears throat> it's almost it's it's a subtlety. It's it's something that. Um, you're aware of it when you're moving into a town, but once you're in the town, you don't think, wake up every morning and say, oh my God, there's no crime last night. You know? No, but when something does happen, you reflect <clears throat> on how the fact that it's like, you know, especially on Facebook, everybody says, this never happens in our town. Oh my God. And I'm like, well, it probably happened in the town next door. Maybe you don't know about it, but things happen. Right. But so it's what- amazing that we have seven whatever billion people and there aren't like walking around people just like stabbing stabbing each other like we're pretty good as people in general as humans you yes. guys have seen and different stuff i get it but like in general no one's walking around let's keep it that way uh, <laughs> but you know what i'm saying like in yeah. general yeah. We, we we live in an, in an orderly society we live, we, we cooperate there's not anarchy throughout the world though i know yeah, that yeah, in certain right. countries sure. i get it but in sure. general in general um, i agree with that uh, but so to get back to the point that we we started on is we come from a world where your deliverables are these intangibles if it's not the, the best word but um an absence of crime and disorder is a successful day for us so when we went with 360 aor our, our company to insurance companies and told them look this is how we're going to monetize what we can do for you. This is how we're going to save you money. Less people are going to get hurt. Less Mm -hmm. cops are going to crash police cars. Less people are going to lose time off of work. I can't tell you how many less 
right now. I can't say we're going to save this five cars. Right. This is this is a new area that you're getting into. So the ROI is is not demonstrable from existing statistics. Well, you can say three months from now, look how great this has been. You can show improvements probably. You can monitor things. it. You can monitor yeah. it, but it, it's hard to predict. You would have had this many accidents. Obviously, you look at the data and yeah. the trends and the, and year after year. Uh, at, at different agencies. So um, we do this. Insurance companies are a big client and partner of ours mm -hmm. uh, because they insure the townships or the counties that send out teams of police officers to do their job. And when it doesn't go well, uh, the insurance companies pick up the bill. So they see the value in, in a, mm -hmm. a product and a service that we provide. And I have, I have one follow-up question to yeah. that. Um, so... You've indicated, how do you present, I, I'm assuming that you don't present this as a in a way that makes people panic. Like one of the things that I have, one of the things that's hard is that you see in today's day and age, especially in a lot of the news cycles, people are reporting news as if it's a uh, using incendiary comments. They're making people feel panic <clears throat> at the fact that these things are going on, and so we need we need immediate an, an immediate response to that. Yeah, yeah great point. Um, sensationalism and mm -hmm. and drama. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When things are sensationalized and dramatized, uh, especially in the media, right, in, in television, mm -hmm. print, radio, um, it gets more attention. And isn't that the end goal of whoever's putting out the information? Right. If it's either on, on, a, on a blog or on Facebook or on CNN, the ultimate goal is to get viewership and to get people listening to your point of view, even if that point of view has no basis in reality. Mm -hmm. uh, we have been able to present in very sterile or comforting terms the same way I, I would say you probably don't get upset when you get in your car and you put on your seatbelt. You probably don't have an uneasy feeling about that. Mm -hmm. It's become a habit. You put on your seatbelt just because it's the right thing to do. I put it on because of the dinging. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's why Subaru is so successful because they drive you insane if you don't put it on. That's total Pavlovian response. They and spin the data. But right, you're right. They, it's they preventative. It, it's, it's preventative. Now, when you get in the car and buckle your seatbelt, you don't say, if I don't do this, I might be in a fiery, brutal crash where I'm killed or dismembered if I don't have this on. Uh, very similar to what we can provide, the safety and security of uh, uh, either an, a risk assessment or a training session right. or one of our other services or products where your risk is mitigated or your risk is transferred or your, your risk is managed because we deal with it every day, right? Yeah. You, you know, you God forbid, you may have a crash on the way home today, but you mitigate the injuries by putting on your seatbelt. And you're dissociating the sensationalism. You're just, yes. you're saying, hey, listen, these are the things that could happen. And this is, you're essentially bringing it, bringing it to, uh, to cost. You're pulling yes. it over to cost and saying, this is what it's going to cost you. It may, you know, aside from maybe costing your life, it's also costing yes. you injuries, it's costing you money. And this is going to mitigate that, you know, and like the seatbelt is a perfect example because I'm not thinking about all of that thing when I put it on. You think seatbelt, seatbelt, safety. Exactly. That's it. I, I'm I not, not even, I'm no just offense. about to ding. <laughs> I, I want to I get Jonathan back in this conversation, but even more important than all those other uh, parts of your business or parts of your company that are at risk, at the end of the day, it's trust and confidence mm -hmm. and reputation. Uh, in, in a school, in a church, in a government building, 
at the end of the day, if there's no trust and confidence in your organization, if you had no trust and confidence in this room right now that the ceiling wasn't going to fall in, right? We don't know the contractor who built the ceiling, but right. we trust that it's not going to fall in and, and crush us. Right. And do you guys do you guys deal solely with physical risk, or do you do things like cyber risk? You know. So I, I'll I'll kind of double back up to to add more to to a, a response to your question. Uh, we we present uh, the statistics. We talk about the loss, uh, and we don't do it in a scary way. But we also recognize that a sterile statistical viewpoint is never going to uh, uh, really. Uh, get a person to be motivated to move forward. So we, we also recognize that there's an emotional response. So um, everyone wants to be seen as competent. Everyone wants mm-hmm. to be seen, and, and listen, law enforcement and business leaders are, are certainly no different. So we attach our response to their level of competency. And we say to them, here, here we are presenting this to you, and we're going to show you how that you, you can be seen as more competent, and through your competency, you end up with a better result. We end up deconstructing any particular incident. So I'll use a car stop as a, for an example. Uh, through uh, what makes us different from other risk management companies is that we will take uh, a motor vehicle stop and we won't just look at the result, a crash, a shooting, a foot chase thing. We, we will say, let's look at the best practice for practices for making a successful car stop. And we'll identify those key performance indicators. And then what we'll do is we'll use something like body-worn cameras to review that particular car stop, look for those key performance indicators, and when we see a gap, we pinpoint that KPI to say, this is where you're having a problem. And the more we're able to do that through the, uh, the number of uh, videos that we see, we can say that you're more than likely to be able to mitigate this incident if you were to address this KPI because 80% of your officers are making this mistake, which ends up in this result. So while we're looking at the data and the statistics, we're also saying, you want to be more competent. You want to be seen as a, as a competent law enforcement agency. You want to reduce the risk. You want the money that would be going to uh, to medical bills to go for training efforts. So we give them the reason behind the statistics and, and methodology of what we're doing. Excellent. Do you know anything about apps? <laughs> well, yes, we do. Oh, you do? Okay, because we're going to close out in a few minutes. By the way, let me say you guys are coming into the Bellworks location, right? Yes, so sir. that permits you to be on the Bellcast, which I also do. Uh, so now that Nick went from I'm not going to speak to actually telling Mariano he was going to transition to Jonathan <laughs> and became basically Johnny Carson within oh. five minutes of the podcast. Because if you don't think I noticed that, I'm like, oh, we're transitioning to Jonathan? Nick. So, Jonathan. Yes, so we have a we have an app that we call Screen Sergeant, and if we look at it from a problem solving perspective, what we've done is we've deconstructed law enforcement problems, and that sounds like a pretty big term, but it, it's really what are the things that go wrong the most, and how do we fix them? So we know that the number one thing that kills law enforcement officers is motor vehicle accidents, uh, second only to uh, ambushes. So there are a number of things that that we can look at and say, well, how do we fix that? We also recognize that we have a bunch of untrained or uh, poorly trained law enforcement officers, mostly newer officers, because once they get out of the academy, those training dollars have been stripped and been used uh, elsewhere. So we've built a mobile application that says we're going to be your partner, your screen sergeant, your, your guide when these officers are going to a particular call. Basically, what the officers would do, they would uh, look at their mobile data terminal, their computer, and they would uh, get a call from the dispatch and say, you're going to a burglary. There would be an icon for the burglary. They would press that, and a voice would come on and basically tell the officer, here's what you're going to do. Take a deep breath. 
watch your intersections, wait for your backup. And if I just stop there, taking a deep breath allows them to get better control of themselves. They're not as so anxious. Mm -hmm. Watching their intersections is, is to cut down on the amount of accidents because the majority of accidents that happen with all law enforcement officers are in intersections. Wait for your backup. We say that to them because we know that once they get there by themselves, they're usually forced to take an action that ends up getting them in trouble. They scream for help and more cops come and crash more cars trying to respond to an officer who needs assistance. So just those three terms that we consistently say in our app are now mitigating uh, things that we know to occur in law enforcement. Can we get Morgan Freeman to do the voice? That would be <laughs> I, I like did Tom the voice. Tom Hanks, who's doing the CNN stuff. I right? did the voice, and it's not as cool as Morgan Freeman. I well, sure. I mean, so. you, you have a wonderful voice. Good. <laughs> I have to but, say, it's you know, pretty good. Is, <laughs> it's a different level. Yeah. But, but the point is that what we do is we, we work on the rules of privacy and recency. The first thing that the officers hear, they're going to remember. The last thing that they hear, they're going to remember. And we take away the stress of, I don't know what to do. New, new officers are trained at the awareness level. They're not trained at the highly competent level. So while they may have seen something before, uh, they make mistakes, and it's, not, it's natural. But the mistakes that happen at the operational level reverberate through, throughout the investigative level and then out throughout the, uh, the court level as well. The mistakes that happen at, at the patrol officer's level make it difficult for a case to be um, investigated and certainly makes it difficult for someone to get, uh, to get taken off the street because of a prosecution. So we address that in, in our instruction. But we also have a, a spot in the app for supervisors uh, to have uh, on-the-spot corrections, to do uh, performance evaluations, to monitor body cameras. It is literally an all-in-one uh, mobile application that helps the police officers perform better. We believe that better performing officers will produce uh, a better service delivery, which then, of course, will turn out to uh, help the, the community and law enforcement with its competency and efficacy. How, how long ago did you guys release it, and is it widely distributed in New Jersey? Uh, it, it actually is not. Um, we, we're still working on it. We're waiting to do a pilot, and, and we, we haven't moved forward with that yet. Uh, we've spent probably about two years working on it, wow. getting it to the point where um, it's it's quickly, it's quick and usable, and, and it's, uh, it's easy for officers to understand because what we can't have is, is an officer you know, pressing a bunch of buttons while they're trying to go to a call and adding more confusion to their day. So uh, the user-friendly um, part of it is just... Uh, has been maximized. We, we also knew that appearance on the Rockstar podcast would propel sales <laughs> into the Scream stratosphere. Sergeant. Scream, Scream Sergeant. Sergeant. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Are we get a percent here? <laughs> um, well, so, we'll, we'll be looking at you for sponsorship yes, in, the, awesome. in the future. <laughs> so as, uh, as we wrap up here, uh, from the kid in the driveway, mm -hmm. and I gave you an opportunity to say what position you were at when you retired, and you humbly did not, so I'm going to call you out on it. You were... I retired as the chief of police. Okay. In wow. your town? Yes, correct. So was that like full closure in a sense? Um, it, it was, and quickly I'll say that that I went to retire as a captain because I was completely frustrated. Uh, we had a number of really bad incidents that occur um, occurred in that town, and I was able to come back, um, kind of pull my, my papers and become chief, and literally uh, work with the officers who helped do an agency transformation, and we, we literally got recognized by the county prosecutor's office uh, for the transformation that we, we undertook in one year. Um, I would love to take credit, and, and I'll just say, you know, as a leader, my, the biggest thing that I can take credit for is working with great men and women who were as frustrated as I was throughout the years and wanted to make a change, and they did so. So, um, Did you leave with a more diverse group than you started with? Um, I actually worked with a lot of the same guys that I had come up with, um, but 
we brought on more females, more minorities. Uh, that really didn't have too much to do with me because we were civil service, uh, okay. but it, it certainly added more diversity to the police department, uh, and uh, it worked out well So I'm going to ask you a question without you answering it because I know that we had a lengthy conversation about this. And this is part, this is, Mario, take notes here, okay? This is called <laughs> leading to the next one, okay? So we discussed about how the concept would be to say, bring more diversity to a police station or a police department, and that'll fix a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Don't answer it, because you'll hear that on the Bellworks podcast for the Bellcast, which I'll have you guys on in a couple of weeks, and you can, we can talk about that and have more answers about that. Absolutely, my pleasure. All right, thank you, guys. Appreciate thank it. You. Thank, thank you, you guys podcast. very much. Episode 35 is in the can. See ya. Bye.